The following interview was recorded for CFRO The Pulse, Vancouver Co-op Radio's daily news show. The Pulse airs Monday to Friday at 7 a.m. on 100.5 FM and streaming live at coopradio.org. On today's show, we're talking about Indigenous birth alerts. It's the practice of either social workers or hospitals raising red flags when some Indigenous mothers go to hospital to give birth. The case often leads to parents losing their newborn babies to the child welfare system. Currently, there are more Indigenous children in child welfare than ever went to residential schools in Canada. British Columbia, after several controversies, announced it would be ending the practice, at least on paper, but two reporters with the outlet Indigenous decided to actually request the documents to find out what happened and when the government knew there were problems with it. In fact, the government gave them papers revealing their own lawyers had warned them it could be unconstitutional to seize people's babies with an alert as it violates privacy and the baby hasn't even been born yet. But it continued doing the practice for several months. Now the government wants the reporters to delete that information that the government itself released the reporters refused and published anyways, and we have them here to talk about their story. Anna McKenzie is a reporter with Indigenous and is a member of Opasquiak Cree Nation. And Brielle Morgan is an editor with Indigenous. Indigenous is funded by a local journalism initiative grant from the federal government, the same funding pool to help local journalism that The Pulse on CFRO gets. We're honored to have both of these journalists with us on our program today. Welcome to the Pulse on CFRO, both Anna and Brielle. Great to have you with us. Thanks, David. Thanks for having us. It's, it's such an honor to have you here. We've been following your reporting closely and often discussing it on our show, but to have you on here to talk about it directly is really wonderful. Well, we appreciate your support and your coverage, David. It's um, really encouraging to hear that other media are paying attention. Now, a lot of our listeners uh, are in the downtown east side, which is our neighborhood and, and East Vancouver more generally. And I know a lot of folks are Indigenous and therefore have had interactions with a child welfare system and uh, with potentially with birth alerts. So just a warning to our listeners that some of the things we're going to discuss are pretty sensitive and triggering topics. And I'm, I wondered if, if that's something when you reported on this, Anna, if this is something you carried with you uh, uh, kind of in mind, because it seems like the work you've done has been so sensitive, but also uh, very passionate about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So prior to coming on board as a reporter with Indigenous, um, I was living and working um, in Vancouver, and I was doing a lot of work um, in the child welfare space, uh, working with Indigenous youth in care. Um, so when I came to Nanaimo, um, and in June 2019, I, I gave birth um, to my daughter at the Nanaimo General Hospital, I had to stay there um, for four days, which was really terrifying for me because I was aware of birth alerts and aware of the um, overrepresentation of Indigenous children and youth in foster care and even had it in my birth plan um, as a visibly Indigenous person with an Indigenous partner. Um, this is something that we needed to be aware of. This is something that happens to Indigenous families um, and at the time really only felt shielded by my non-Indigenous mother who was with me the entire time I was at the hospital. That's, I mean, that's heartbreaking to hear. Really heartbreaking. That's It's something that's so deeply entrenched that you have to worry about that going into one of the most beautiful moments of one's life just seems so so wrenching to me yeah it was hard and upon reflection like I couldn't like fully verbalize the fear that I was feeling but um you know I had this beautiful moss bag made for my daughter um and moss bags for Cree folks um traditionally you you know you wrap up your baby um and I felt fear in bringing in that moss bag to the hospital um 
just for fear of being judged and also because the nurses uh, were so clear with me that uh, babies weren't to be swaddled anymore. So that was just an example of me wanting to bring in uh, my culture into the hospital setting but wasn't able to do so because of the fear. I know that you also have, you've mentioned working in like children's services and various organizations and in the past. How widespread was this, uh, was this problem? Obviously you you took it to heart yourself, but how often did this happen in your eyes before you started researching it? Um, oh gosh, they, it just for me, it really started just with sort of whispers in the community that this had happened. And from my estimation, there was not a lot of information out there. I think um, there was one big article that came out about birth alerts happening in Canada. And then I remember in September 2019 when um, they were cancelled. That was just a couple of months after I had had my baby. And so that when they were um, cancelled in BC, that's when it kind of came back to me again. Um, and through Indigenous, being able to um, pitch different topics. This is something that we pitched um, in early September. Um, and this is something that I just wanted to, to dig in on um, under the, I guess, mentorship and care of Brielle, who is a seasoned, um, very experienced journalist. Brielle, over to you. When did you first hear about birth alerts? And, and what was your kind of what what was your thoughts when you first found out about this? Um, well, I guess I, I just heard about it through covering the child welfare system as a reporter at the discourse. Um, so I've been covering the system for about four years, um, four or five years. And I mean, yeah, just following what's going on across the country, birth alerts uh, often popped up in, in sort of Google alerts for me. Um, I don't remember if I heard it like directly from anybody in community or if it was more from news coverage of what was happening. So definitely came at it from a different place than Anna. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I think as someone who had a baby a year ago, it lands with me in a different way now. Um, I remember my doula um, who is indigenous telling me that um, she works with all kinds of uh, indigenous women um, as a doula caring for them as they are preparing to have a baby and um, she told me that like regardless of whether someone is living on reserve off reserve wealthy um, like you know not having a lot of money um, indigenous women that she works with are like consistently afraid to go to the hospital um, and feel that because of birth alerts and because of like how commonplace this is within communities and so it's just really, really hard for me to imagine because I have the privilege of being a white woman and not being afraid to go to the hospital that I'm going to walk out without my bee. That's, I mean, one of the most distressing things that could happen to someone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Anna, how does how do birth alerts work? At least until they were, uh, at least on paper, told not to happen in BC. What, what is the kind of process that leads to that? So through our investigation and through our research, um, from what we understand, um, a birth alert um, is when a social worker is notified by hospital staff that there may be a child welfare concern. Um, and this may occur um, when the mother um, or the expected parent um, is um, like before the baby's been born. So um, the baby can be flagged. Um, and what was really concerning about this was that the information that was being shared between healthcare professionals and social workers was without the consent of families. 
Um, so that was the really problematic, uh, one of the most problematic pieces about birth alerts that we uncovered was that it was um, a huge privacy issue. Um, so we know that in BC, once a birth alert is issued, um, 28% of birth alerts resulted in the infant being apprehended. Um, and there was a number of high-profile cases um, in BC and across Canada, and really important to note as well that birth alerts are still occurring in other provinces um, in Canada. Go ahead, Brielle. I think I would just add uh, quickly to what Anna said in that we've kind of heard that it happens two different ways. So MCSD defines a birth alert as when a social worker flags a hospital in an area um, where there's a parent on their radar and they're concerned that that parent is not going to be able to take care of the baby once the baby's delivered. And so it's like originates with the social worker who asks the hospital to let them know once that parent um, comes in to deliver their baby. But we've also heard that it can originate with the hospital workers notifying MCFD. So that's a story that we're working on right now is exactly how do birth alerts work and, and trying to define that in a bit more detail for people because we've had a lot of people asking what exactly it is. I wanted to ask you both about um, how you went about your investigation, especially for the um, the exclusive story you had in which it turned out that the BC government's own lawyer was warned warned that the birth alerts might be illegal and unconstitutional. How did you find that out? Tell us the story of that. So in September um, 2020, we as a team at Indigenous um, decided to do a month-long series on reproductive health um, following the death of Indigenous mother Joyce Ashaquan in Quebec. It was just something I think we all wanted to just come together to, um, as a team, work on um, topics that were really meaningful that had to do with, like, in the healthcare system and the child welfare system. So um, I had pitched an idea early on on doing a bit of investigating into birth alerts, and my colleague Bailey at the time was taking a course um, on filing FOIs. So she ended up filing with the Ministry of Children and Family Development on birth alerts. Um, and it took a while, Brielle, I'm not, I, I can't remember how long it took. I think it was more than a month. Um, and then we received this package um, of information um, where uh, Brielle really went through it with a fine tooth comb. And we found that language um, of the MCFD being advised through the Attorney General that birth alerts um, were illegal and unconstitutional. Hmm. Had you ever filed an FOI before or was this your first? This was my first time dealing with an FOI as a newer journalist. Now, often in my experience as a journalist, FOIs are not successful and I've had 90% returned back with either no records or so redacted that it was useless to me. This sounds like a substantive package that actually said something. What happened next? Yeah. I think I would, I would just add quickly to that for the journalists that are listening that it was, it, our colleague Bailey filed the FOI and because they were um, doing it as a student for basically for a class assignment, they filed it under their, like, you know, just their name, like as a citizen, not as a journalist. And so we're wondering if that's why, um, you know, part of the reason that the government maybe didn't go over it as carefully before they returned the request and then later mm. asked us to redact it. And that was that was Bailey Marelge. So you mentioned that the government wanted their information back. Like, how did that go down? I've, I've never heard of that before. They gave you a package full of pretty shocking information and then they asked for it not to be used. Yeah, we received, um, basically we've got a, a, a note from, Anna received a note from um, the communications director for the Ministry of the Attorney General's office saying, hey, like, need to talk to you ASAP, can you give me a call? Um, and Anna was off work that day, so I called the uh, communications director and, and they said, 
Um, just wanted to give you a heads up that you're going to be receiving a, a letter from a lawyer acting for MCFD. Um, it turns out that the information that was released to you in that package was released in error. And we're asking that you don't disseminate it, don't publish it, and return the package to us. What was the rationale? Why, why shouldn't you if this is information that has genuinely been released? They said that the information should have been, should have been covered by solicitor-client privilege because um, it was advice from, it was legal advice from, you know, a government lawyer to the government. And so they said that it should have been like confidential between the lawyer and in this and their client in this case the provincial government and wow. so we shared that with our our lawyer our media lawyer and he said absolutely not will you like sit on that information if you've decided that it's in the public interest it's your constitutionally protected right as journalists to share information that you feel is in the public interest how did you feel about this brielle as a journalist yourself but also as someone who's very invested in this story i was shocked i was so surprised that they would um it felt like an intimidation tactic, but it felt like they didn't have, um, they didn't have, like the language wasn't very strong. They didn't say we demand that you return that information or not publish. They said we will request that you don't do that. Um, and my, like my sort of question is if, if it wasn't Indigenous, if this was the Globe and Mail or the CBC, um, that had been pressing them for interviews and clearly preparing to publish a story on this, would they have reacted the same way and tried to um, bully or intimidate a bigger media outlet um, if it was somebody else that had this information? Mm. Anna, how did you feel seeing this kind of pretty high-power letter from the provincial attorney general? That's a, that's a scary thing, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't respond very well to bullies. Um, doesn't matter who <laughs> they are, but I, at the time, was just playing at the beach with my kids. I had the day off. It was a beautiful, sunny day, and Brielle had offered to take the call um, with their comms person, and yeah, I just was forwarded an email with my name on the top, um, along with Brielle's, and if anything, I think it really um, lit a fire under us, and it was really amazing to see all of our team members at Indigenous just kind of activate to rise to what we needed to do to get the information out there. So I guess we had known um, about the information based on the FOI before Christmas, so I actually had some time over the holidays to be able to, like, calm myself and prepare for what I knew was to come. Wow. Usually when someone in power tells me not to report on something, that definitely makes me want to take an even closer look at what the thing was. So what was in the FOIs that was so sensitive uh, that they were hoping to get it retracted? What, what, did, what did their own lawyers say about birth alerts? Some of the key takeaways um, was that in the FOI, it, it showcased that the BC government was aware um, prior to ending birth alerts officially in BC, um, that they were unconstitutional and illegal. Um, so they had this information four months before the practice officially ended. Um, also in the FOI, um, there was at least, we found that there was at least one parent in BC who had made an official complaint that their privacy was breached by virtue of a birth alert. Um, and it was investigated and substantiated by the BC Ministry of Citizen Services. So that was another um, nugget of information in the FOI that somebody had made an official substantiated complaint. Um, yeah, anything else you want to add, Brielle? To yeah, well, I mean, it just sparked all kinds of curiosity for us mm -hmm. because we knew that, I mean, as soon as I saw that, um, that this practice was dubbed unconstitutional and illegal by the government, 
we know how widespread it is. We know that in like according to MCFD's own data, nearly 500 um, parents had birth alerts issued on them in in just like the year and a half before they canceled them. So um, and that, like nearly 500 in a year and a half. And if this practice is in fact illegal, then my mind immediately went to well, like what what kind of reparations might these parents be entitled to? Um, and then, you know, do these parents even know that they were subject subject to something that the government um, feels is illegal and unconstitutional? So it just raised it. You know, I was really excited to dig into this, and um, it felt like such an important piece of public service journalism to work on. That's a good segue into, um, Brielle, one of your recent reportings uh, just 10 days ago, which is what's happening now uh, as a result of your expose. Um, and if you could talk a little bit about one of the things is that uh, people want a notification to parents who are subjected to these alerts, that there's an apology they say is, is needed, but also people need to know that they were, that they were violated in this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Anna and I reached out to um, quite a few sort of leaders in the child welfare space. And we, um, you know, we especially wanted to hear from um, indigenous people who are, who would have perspective on this. And, um, so we connected with Cheryl Casimer, who's a political executive with the First Nations Summit, and um, it, it, it was very validating to have a conversation with Cheryl Casimer because she was so fired up about this, and she said that as soon as the story came out the next day, she was in conversation with MCFD at the table and asking them, um, at, like asking them for an explanation and asking them what they were going to do about this, and she's part of a tripartite working group with, um, you know, as a, as a first nations leader in BC, she sits at a table regularly with the BC government and with the federal government. And she said that it was really frustrating to, to hear that MCFD knew about this months before they canceled birth alerts. Um, and yet they hadn't been transparent with her as a partner at the table. So there's, you know, they're supposed to be moving forward in a more transparent way, having open communication in the spirit of reconciliation. And yet they're keeping this kind of thing under wraps for months. Now I want to read a statement that MCFD, they said their focus since we ended the practice of birth alerts has been forward looking. We didn't want to re-traumatize affected families by providing notifications of past birth alerts. Our goal was to ensure the safety of children. Uh, What do you make of that? How do you react to that, Anna? Oh, yeah, I problematic. I think we got the email and Brielle um, for like highlighted that quote in particular and sent it to right away. And um, it's problematic. And I, I spoke with Mary Ellen Japelafon for the first story of the series. And she she's, of course, the uh, the former children's watchdog for BC and is now at the Indian Residential Schools Dialogue Center at UBC, a law professor. Yeah, absolutely. And she's a former judge. And she just recently um, released the report in plain sight. Um, on systemic racism in the healthcare system. And she spoke um, about that, indeed, parents, individuals who may have experienced a birth alert, receiving a call or receiving a letter from the Ministry of Children and Family Development um, would be potentially um, hard for parents to receive. But in our estimation through this investigation, and personally, I really feel strongly that um, parents, people that have been victims of birth alerts, um, have a right to know 
have a right to know that um, their information has been shared without their consent and have a right to know that perhaps something more could have been done to be able to um, honour and keep together families and to keep newborn babies with their moms. Interestingly, the idea of, oh, we're looking forward now, we don't want to dwell on the past or re-traumatize people, that kind of reminds me of what people say when you talk about, say, the 60s scoop or residential schools or the reserve system. Oh, that's the past. You know, why can't people move on? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I feel similarly, you know, um, with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, you know, with the final report coming out, I think there's a lot of um, fears that now that this report is out, this information has been gathered and a lot of folks were re-traumatized and sharing those stories um, that they experienced in residential school. It's, it's just not over. So I, I agree with that, David, that... Um, the forward-looking, uh, I guess, speech or idea is um, is problematic in that it, it disregards um, the trauma that folks have experienced. Is there anything, uh, Anna, before we close, that you'd like to ref- you've learned from the story, or that you really like has inspired you in some way, despite how traumatizing and and upsetting this is? Yeah, I mean, I've been working in the child welfare space for almost ten years now, and unfortunately, I wasn't surprised by. The information, but it just reaffirmed to me that there are discrepancies in our systems that are meant to care for us as Indigenous people. Um, and it was really disheartening, but I have been entirely uplifted by uh, my editor, Brielle, and by the entire Indigenous team and have felt really, really empowered um, to continue pushing to um, cover hard stories in the child welfare space in BC. Uh, Brielle, anything that you've taken from this investigation? Yeah, I think I'd echo what Anna said about... Um just affirming the systemic discrimination and racism that is uh, present in the child welfare system, present in the healthcare system, present in the justice system. Um, this is just another way that that manifests. And um, and I'm encouraged that so many families have been reaching out to us in the wake of like the releasing the first story to share their story. And that's something that we're working on now is how can we um, how can we like use our platform to amplify some of their stories and some of their ideas for change um, because that's a really important piece of this as well, like finding safe ways to share perspectives of parents that have experienced this while also honoring their, uh, you know, their children's rights to privacy. So we're figuring that out right now. Um, and, I, and I'd also just want to add that, um, you know, I've never worked for a team before that is predominantly made up of women who are Indigenous and um, the care that everybody has brought to this investigation and um, um, and how personal it is for a lot of folks on our team is, um, yeah, it's um, it just affirms for me how important it is to have rep- Indigenous representation in newsrooms because Anna and other folks on our team bring a completely different lens to this and a different level of care than a non-Indigenous reporter does. And I have to say that care has shone through all of the many stories in this series. And I think far from what the government said, that it would re-traumatize people to hear the truth. In fact, it sounds like hearing the truth spoken has been a bit of a healing process for many people. Mm -hmm. At least for me as an Indigenous journalist, just getting that information out there. Um, But I think we're at a really um, sort of tender, critical time right now where um, that information is... um, sort of digesting with, with people. Um, and there are more steps yet to come, more stories that we're going to be sharing, more action that is going to be, um, more action that's going to happen as a result of this. My last question, Anna, is just about, I know this is really 
enliven the discussion about how First Nations can get control over their own children's welfare. I know BC has signed some agreements with, for instance, the Kwepmuk Nations, uh, with uh, uh, one of the Stalo Nations. I know there's discussions happening about this. What's what's going to happen on that area? What are people pushing for? I know that Bill C-92 is a pretty big area. Yeah, that's a really good question, David. Um, yeah, I know that there are a lot of nations moving forward with reclaiming um, sovereignty over their own child welfare um, systems. And I think that bringing this forward, this information forward about birth alerts just reaffirms the need for um, Indigenous uh, folks to be caring for Indigenous children um, and that uh, we are moving collectively in the right direction um, for Indigenous communities, uh, First Nations, Métis and Inuit communities to be able to reclaim sovereignty over their child welfare system. Thank you both so much for the diligence and effort and truth that you've brought to bear on this. I really appreciate you sharing that with our listeners. Thank you, David. Thanks for having us. Thank you both. Yeah, thanks so much, David, for your care and for your interest in this. Take care. We look forward to what's coming next. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. And that was Anna McKenzie, a reporter with Indigenous News. She is a member of Opasquiak Cree Nation. You can find her latest article, Indigenous Governing Bodies Are Reclaiming Authority Over Child Welfare, at indigenews.com. That's I-N-D-I-G-I-N-E-W-S dot com. We also heard from Brielle Morgan, an editor with Indigenews. And that website is producing lots of Indigenous-led reporting across the province. And it is funded by the Local Journalism Initiative, which is the same federal funding body that funds this show, The Pulse, on CFRO. CFRO The Pulse is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, a program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada.